arches. All right. It is just about time for us to begin this evening. Welcome to everyone who has come here, uh, both in person and um, via the live stream. I'm Heidi Rupke, and just a couple of housekeeping notes as we get started. Uh, first of all, many of you have been here for the other weeks that we have done this, but for the newcomers, what is a live podcast recording? Uh, what we're doing right now is we are live streaming this conversation onto the internet, and then we will um, take the audio later and make it into a podcast, but you are part of that. So if your cell phone goes off, you have made the podcast. So please, please turn them off. Um, if it's funny, please feel free to laugh. This is not like the um, please don't let a pin drop kind of place. If it's funny, we would, it'd be great if you laugh. Um, applaud if you are so moved. Um, and think of a great question to ask. Uh, we may have some time at the end for a little bit of interaction with the audience. So. Um, uh, in some, this is a public conversation, and I've prepared some questions, but honestly, we don't know exactly how this is going to go down. So thanks for being part of the creative process. All right. Welcome to Dialogue, the Lenten Preaching Series podcast. I'm Heidi Rupke, the Lenten Preaching Series coordinator, and I'm here with guests Ms. Caitlin Curtis and Dr. Jamar Tisby to explore the topic of the future of faith. As we shepherd our 100-year-old preaching series, we're grateful for the work of those who've come before us, and we're also here to consider the legacy that we might be leaving for the next century of questioners and faithful people. Tonight, we're here with Dr. Jamar Tisby, a historian, speaker, and author whose first book, The Color of Compromise, carefully documented the ways that the Christian church has explicitly sanctioned racist practices throughout the centuries. In his writing, he proposes that sometimes the most effective way to generate change in an institution is to take a step back from the tight and established circles of power. He started The Witness, a black Christian collective, as one way to gather and share out ways of being authentic selves in a Christian context. His second book, How to Fight Racism, takes a practical approach to structural systems that we could reimagine and recreate. When he's not writing, you can catch his podcast, Pass the Mic, which he co-hosts with Tyler Burns. Ms. Caitlin Curtis is an award-winning poet, writer, and storyteller who's explored the intersections of the mundane and the sublime, ancestral imprints and present-day implications, systemic power, and individual action. The author of three books, including her most recent, Living Resistance, Caitlin speaks widely to a variety of audiences who identify with a variety of faith categories. She is an enrolled member of the Potawatomi Nation, and was raised in the evangelical Christian faith. Caitlin brings home the complexities of categories with genuine warmth and compelling critique. Welcome, Jamar and Caitlin. Thank you. All right, so I am a big fan of Krista Tippett, and I love the question that she always starts her podcast on being with. Tell us a little bit about the spiritual background of your childhoods. I'll go first. Um, so <clears throat> I always uh, kind of describe my childhood in two parts. So I'll tell you the two parts of my childhood. Um, the, at age nine, my parents divorced and uh, my dad left our family. So that was a, a traumatic time, but also in my identity and in how I viewed the world, it was a really important time for me. So. Before age nine, I grew up in, you know, Oklahoma, New Mexico. Um, a lot in my, in my heart, in my mind, had a very sort of mystical relationship to the land, um, but also grew up Southern Baptist. So even when I was young, that was just rooted in us, was that also that conversation in my mind of, am I good enough? And, you know, do I need salvation? And all, all the things that a good Southern Baptist child would ask in Oklahoma in Mexico. So, um, but also my father was a um, BIA officer. He worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And so 
having this the weird complexity of, you know, my dad didn't really go to church with us, but we went to church and um, we're Potawatomi, but we don't talk about it because colonization has stripped us of those conversations in a lot of ways. So very strange sort of um, mix of things. And then at age nine, my dad left and my parents got divorced. And so he moved to Oklahoma and we were living in Missouri at that time. And so kind of small town Missouri, you know, a church on every street corner, very immersed in Southern Baptist culture even more. Um, and then my, my mother got remarried to my stepfather, who's wonderful, and he was a Southern Baptist pastor. And so the church, specifically the Southern Baptist church, became my safe place. It became the place where I had to uh, reconcile my identity, where I had to assimilate into that culture and I had to be a pastor's kid right so I had to become the face of that and and you know became the the good people-pleasing little girl and um, lost a lot of my Potawatomi identity in that process and um, didn't fully know how to how to reconcile that inside of myself and so um, you know was in the purity movement wanted to be a famous worship leader like just had it all had it all going, and um, and it got way more complex once I entered college. But my yeah, my childhood was in these two parts, and a lot of moving pieces and a lot of complexity that I think I probably share with a lot of other people who have some of these kind of complexities in their backgrounds in their childhood. I grew up north of Chicago, and um, my family wasn't religious but wasn't anti-religious it just wasn't a big topic although I think out of a sense of obligation my mom insisted that we get baptized and it was actually in a southern baptist church which is interesting <laughs> it was literally across the street and I think the proximity is also how I ended up in catholic schools for most of my education uh, k through eight went to a catholic school because our neighbor down the street was the principal um, and so I never got away with anything. I, I never even <laughs> tried anything. And then uh, in high school, this classic evangelical conversion story, friendship evangelism. There's a guy in my high school health and PE class. It was at this ungodly hour in the morning. Why do we make kids get up so early for school? And But he, he was this dorky dude who I noticed just didn't cuss, didn't use swear words, which was really, really weird in high school. And um, <laughs> he just befriended me and eventually invited me to his youth group, which the whole thing is set up to, to draw you in. Um, they had food, they had games, they had girls, and it was like, hey, this is a great thing to do on a Wednesday night. And oh, they're talking about Jesus. Uh, sure, I'll sit down for 15 minutes until we can get to the pizza. Um, but so, somehow, you know, the messages started making sense, and then they sort of, in a cordial way, kind of cornered me in, uh, at a retreat. We were, we were, it was like a winter retreat. We were in a cabin. It was an all-boys cabin, and I remember the smell of wet socks. <laughs> and that's where I prayed the sinner's prayer and accepted Jesus into my heart. Um, of course, I had no idea really what that meant, but it, it was real. It was, there was something genuine about it. So I quickly became a leader in that evangelical youth group. It was part of, uh, this is like the 90s, so this is part of like the seeker-sensitive movement and church growth and all of that stuff and started going to the churches associated. So it was all these, you know, messages, three steps to a healthy marriage, five steps to, you know, manage your finances, like that was from the pulpit. What was never spoken of was anything about race. Mm -hmm. hmm. And that's sort of a recent realization. Like, like I didn't have a, a negative experience in this time. It wasn't like people were being malicious or overtly racist or anything. It, it just wasn't a topic. It was invisible to them. And therefore, part of me was invisible to them. And it was this assimilation thing. Like, oh, yeah, you're one of us. Just leave all that culture and race stuff out the door, but you're one of us. And all of that is in the background. I get to college, another Catholic school, Notre Dame, and um, an interesting, uh, interesting religious stream start to intersect at that point. Um, I, I get exposed to something called Reformed theology, and then the first 
uh, Reformed church I go to is a Dutch Reformed church. And um, I had always been one of just a couple of, of people of color in these evangelical spaces. At this Dutch Reformed church, I was the only, <laughs> the only person of color there. And I had no idea, but Dutch folks run tall. And I'm not, so I just stuck out. And, and, and at the same time, they had something called the Center for Social Concerns at Notre Dame, which was based on Catholic social teaching. And it was through that that I got involved in service projects. I spent a summer in the inner city of Chicago doing a, 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 a day camp for youth. And that is what sort of planted the seed for um, me after graduation joining Teach for America. And that's how I got down to the Delta region of Arkansas, which um, I was in Phillips County, which was the fourth poorest county in the entire country. And I taught sixth grade and I was a middle school principal, but all of that, you know, those different religious streams kind of coming together and I'm still trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think you guys are, are both poster child for multiple identities, Venn diagrams of, mm -hmm. of multiple categories. Um, I mentioned earlier this is the hundredth year of this preaching series, and so I wanted to play with that idea of time a little bit, and I wanted you to think back to an ancestor of yours who would have been alive at the time that this preaching series at Calvary started in 1923, um, and if you could, tell us who that person was and maybe what they would have thought about faith at that time. I know it's projection, but who, who are your people, your ancestors? Um, so I, uh, when, with this question, I thought about um, Hannah Brandt, who is my, my Potawatomi ancestor. Um, and she was alive during this time. And to set the scene for this, um, in 1838, there was a forced removal of Potawatomi people from Indiana into Kansas. Um, so, you know, you've heard of the Trail of Tears. I'm sure this, this was a forced removal of our people called the Trail of Death. Mm. And it was, you know, designed by the U.S. government. So they were forced at gunpoint to leave. Um, so there's still a lot of Potawatomi in the Great Lakes region. But this particular group was forced to walk for two months to Kansas, to a, a home they had never been before, and completely relocate. So my ancestor, um, Hannah Brandt, her family was one of those people. And so um, she was born in Kansas. And then my, my other ancestors ended up going into Oklahoma, which is where I was born and where my tribe is today. And I think that that illustrates a lot, says a lot about the complexity she probably held, like I do, um, having connection to the ancestors in my family who especially are women and especially are Potawatomi women, um, I cannot imagine what they were trying to deal with and understand if um, by the time I was born, if talking about being Potawatomi was silenced completely in our family due to trauma from colonization, then I can only imagine how that seed was planted in them even before Hannah Brandt, I'm sure. Um, and so I think about her a lot and I write in my new book about, um, that the work we do today, it is possible to heal our ancestors, even in the work that we're doing now, um, as a way to understand our existence as a collective existence, that we need to pay attention to that so that we can be a part of healing past generations and future generations along with this lifetime we're living now. And so thinking about that forced removal, how my people even ended up in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and what that means for me to trace the steps back again. Um, I think about her a lot and her family and, and our family and how we got here and how we can get back again, mm. back home in a way. So one of the challenges for African descended people in the US is being cut off from our ancestors mm -hmm. and our history. Uh, I re I've been to different parts of Africa, uh, but this past November had an opportunity for the first time to go to West Africa and went to Benin, which is, uh, was colonized by the French. Um, it's also the location of the historic Dahomey Kingdom. So if you've s seen or heard of the movie Warrior King, 
the, the warriors were, were actual historical people in this region, uh, in Benin. And I remember we didn't get to the coast for a couple of, until a couple of days after we arrived. And then we went to the coast and I'd never been on that side of the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. And with each step as we got closer to the ocean, <laughs> there were actual physical waves, but there were waves of emotion mm -hmm. that started to cascade over me as I realized my people at some point, somewhere, were on this western coast of Africa. And they have this um, big arch there called uh, the Door of No Return. It's built recently, but it symbolizes the, the passing from your ancestral homeland across the ocean into this life of race-based chattel slavery. So all of that as lead up to, you know, an ancestor who was alive in 1923. We know very little of, of our history before or even during our grandparents' time, but my dad's dad, my grandfather, um, was born in 1907 and he lived to 103 years old. Wow. Uh, so he was alive then. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't remember him as especially religious or anything, but he was in Louisiana and the family lore is, um, he, he was in moonshining and this was common, you know. Like, wow. It was like <laughs> during the Great Depression and people are trying to make ends meet. It was just a side hustle basically. Uh, but he was getting too rich. He was getting too much money from it. And uh, he was coming home from his day job, whatever that was, and one of his neighbors stops him before he gets home. He's like, don't go home. They're waiting for you. He's like, who's waiting for us? And, and it was the white moonshiners who were upset that he was horning in on their business. And so without ever going home, he went straight to California and started a new life, brought his family over there, and uh, that's part of what he would have been dealing with. Um, but whether they were religious or not, uh, the, the black church is really the oldest, and at that point, pretty much the only uh, semi-autonomous black institution uh, where you would go for anything that you needed from uh, food to money to um, affirmation or whatever. So, mm -hmm. yeah, a little bit of family history. Well, I'm actually going to jump in on this um, this question myself just for a little bit of contrast because I like thinking about our grandparents imagining the three of us in a room together and I wonder if they could. Huh. Um, my grandparents were also alive in 1923. Um, my, my maternal grandmother was Hulda Koch, so those of you who are listening carefully, that's a Dutch name. So Jamar, I don't know if, if our paths have crossed in some sort of way before we got here. Um, she would have been a child living on a farm in a very rural area. Um, for my grandparents' faith, uh, it, they would have been at a Dutch reformed church. Um, it was the cultural and social glue of that little town and, and those people living on the prairie where farming is not easy. And you are always at the mercy of the weather, a blizzard. Like This is where Laura Ingalls Wilder had those locusts come down and there's electric storms and it floods. And the, so they're very, very close to the land. But, um, and I think too about the people of that town in living memory there, the elders of that time would have told my grandparents probably about Indian removal, native removal uh, from that land. The Lakota and the Dakota people um, have a lot of, um, have reservation land there now. Um, so to me, thinking about, you know, the these three stories that we have, um, the faith, journeys that we bring here, I think it gives me hope that such distinct beginnings can, can come to a conversation, um, and it makes me excited 
for what maybe our kids will, will be able to experience. Um, and we'll, we'll go to the next generations and coming questions. Um, but I wanna poke more into the faith question and, and what is it exactly? We've, we've got a lot of names, we've got institutions, but I wanna ask you how we measure it. Um, in modern times, we have, we like to count things. We like to count attendance. We like to count members. We like to count souls saved if you're mm -hmm. in a certain, um, in a certain vein. Um, or if you're on social media, how many subscribers, downloads, views do we have? Um, what do you think would be an alternative measure for faith? How could, how could we show that faith is effective without just counting things? Um, when the pandemic happened, uh, I remember being frustrated because I was in this tiny little church in the Delta and as difficult as it was for any sort of faith community to figure out what it means to be a faith community when you couldn't physically meet together, there were some congregations and communities that were able to pivot pretty quickly and, and honestly easily, relatively speaking. They had AV teams, they had video cameras, they had you know, anything that you would need to, to essentially go digital. We didn't. We, we had archaic <laughs> equipment. We still had cassette players in the <gasps> church. Wow. We didn't use them, but they were there. <laughs> There's uh, one here in this building, I know. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> I've seen it. And I remember being so frustrated. It's like, but, but we can't do this. We can't have this like big production and multiple camera angles and everything on Zoom or whatever it is. And it forced me to think, well, if not every church can do it, is it essential to being the church? Mm. And I decided it wasn't. And, and so when you talk about measuring things, they'll know we're Christians by our love, right? And so how we care for people, especially in the hardest times, like mm -hmm. a pandemic, mm -hmm. I think is tough to measure. Um, but I think one sort of biblical model I keep coming back to is fruitfulness. Mm. Um, you'll you'll know a tree by its fruit and if we have people in our faith communities that are bearing the fruit of the spirit love joy peace patience kindness gentleness self-control all of those things if we are um in our communities a our witness is a pleasant one a positive one um to me, those are the things that, that indicate is the church being what Christ said it should be um, because there's gonna be plenty, more and more and more churches that don't have a lot of funding or even a lot of people or all of these measures that we look at. But that can't be, I mean, <coughs> God's calculus is just so different. Uh, this is a a tough question because I can think of more and more things that faith isn't like that's because that's valid. I, I see so many um, communities wanting to, you know, put a bandaid on things that we don't want to talk about and call it healing or um, wanting to check the to do list for the DEI instead of like treating it as this lifelong thing that we have to work toward or, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm going to explain DEI. Oh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Some of these, these things that have become popularized, like we want to treat them as a, a box to be checked. Like you brought an indigenous person, you know, you brought a black person to speak and check the box, you know, and that's not what faith is and it can't be that. And obviously I just wrote a book on <clears throat> wellness and wholeness and what could it possibly mean to be whole and, um, will we even find wholeness in our lifetime? But what I come back to a lot is that our faith is not linear mm. and it can't be treated in a linear way, like, like our healing, like our wholeness. And mm -hmm. we've been so wired to think of things in this point A to point B way that can we start thinking of um, the love and the care and the work that we do in the world as cycles, cycles that follow the seasons, cycles that follow the seasons of our own lives, cycles that follow 
the care for other people, the solidarity, the embodiments that we're supposed to be creating for and with each other. Can we just, can we like, <clears throat> a lot of faith might just be being willing to unlearn <laughs> some of these ways that we have been taught to think about ourselves and each other and the earth. And can we unlearn some of those ways and, and pick up other ways of learning and bring that into ourselves? Can we do that personally and can we do it on a communal level? Mm. And I've seen people do it and I think we can, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time. It's bringing up just uh, so many thoughts for me about how, I mean, the, 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 the church is sort of, um, given a lot of different metaphors, but, but, but so often organic ones. And it mm -hmm. reminds me of like, you know, if you take a, a, a potato from the ground or an apple from the tree, it ain't clean and shiny. It's dirty, it's imperfect, right? But it can still be healthy. Um, and I get really concerned as you talk about measuring how polished Mm -hmm. the church has become mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, you can think of that internally and just like the, the, the liturgy itself or, but I'm also thinking especially online, mm -hmm. you know, folks were already doing, you know, church services and things and airing them online, but that it really ramped up during the pandemic. And I'm just like, this is like Hollywood studio <laughs> quality <laughs> stuff here. <laughs> Thank you to our videographer, Noah. Thank you. Great job, Noah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I love it. Like, I want my stuff to be that high quality, too. But I'm also like, there's, there's going to be a draw to, to produce yeah. faith, make it a production, mm -hmm. uh, which then lends itself to these sort of very corporate businessy kind of measures. And I'm convinced some of these pastors should have just started their own company ah. and not gone into the clergy. Yeah. Um, because that's your calling. Like that's yeah. clearly your gifting. You don't have to make yourself feel holy oh. by being a pastor, but you're really like a business mm -hmm. management expert. Right. Like just go be a business management and love Jesus, right? So anyway, yeah. <laughs> I love the the ways that you are you're uh, revising the way that we think about things. Um, the word organic, um, the words healing your ancestors. We're playing with time here, mm -hmm. and we're playing with, I mean, across even lines of death. Right? If we're talking about people who are no longer living, how does how does that faith continue and and get reflected back to them? I, but I want to follow up on your your word organic. Um, what do you think is our responsibility um, to live as faithful people with the land? I kind of, I'll just tip my hand and say, I love um, environmental, the environmental movement. I love to be outside. It's uh, wonderful. But I can definitely get into the mindset that weather and nature is kind of a, kind of a backdrop. I can like it or I can not like it. But... I'm not sure about my relationship with it um, and how is the land an actor other than something that makes me wear a coat or rain boots? Um, well, we, we call Mother Isugamakwe in Potawatomi. Um, and of course, again, I write about all this in my book, um, but a lot actually, it's quite repetitive. I'm like, you have a relationship with the earth. Did I tell you in the last chapter? You have a relationship with Mother Earth. Did you know you have a relationship with Mother Earth? Um, I really like it. It's repetitive on purpose because, again, we need repetition. It's cyclical. It's in cycles. And um, one thing that I started doing actually during COVID when I would lead workshops on Zoom is I have people start um, a love letter to Mother Earth, to Sigma Quay. And I do this because I think that so much even of our climate movements is so people focused, which it should be, like obviously I love people, but there's something about our relationship to our mother, to Mother Earth that, that can sometimes be ignored, that, that the, the Earth isn't it, and we obviously need to preserve ourselves and whatever happens, happens, but we're doing this for us. And sometimes I just wanna remind people to step back and recognize that 
whatever lands we have or haven't been on and oppression and colonization coming into the mix of this, that whoever we are, whoever we are, anywhere on the earth, we have some sort of relationship to Mother Earth. And so I encourage people to write a love letter to Mother Earth too. I tell them it's a define the relationship letter. Mm. You, you really <laughs> start from the beginning. Uh, I loved you as a kid. I don't know what happened. Mm. Um, I don't really know who you are. I don't really know who I am always. I wonder if we can fix this. Can it be, like, just be honest. And I've encouraged people to start a journal, like have a journal and write letters to her mm. as a being, as someone that you can repair a relationship with. Mm. I think it would drastically change the way that we view climate conversations and Absolutely. environmental conversations and Christianity uh, because we don't talk about this. We, I grew up in a world of dominion, right? Mm. It was dominion. It was, as humans, we are at the top and everything else can just be what it needs to be and we we get to rule, you know? And to have this humble, beautiful relationship of reciprocity and care, um, we really need it. I actually think it's a part of our healing as individuals. It's a part of our collective healing. Um, we, we really need it. We need to at least examine and hopefully begin to repair that relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh. This this land conversation is so multi-layered, um, and I'm thinking of it through a, a racial lens and an African-American one. Uh, so you can go all the way back to the so-called doctrine of discovery mm -hmm. in the 1450s, which was essentially the pope giving divine sanction for conquering land mm -hmm. and converting the pagans, right? Um, and so much of the colonialism that Caitlin referenced, so much of the history of African people in the United States is connected to acquiring land mm -hmm. and extracting resources to enrich some other place. Uh, and then living in the Delta has been really formative for me. Um, it's a place that is deeply shaped by nature. So I don't know if you've ever seen the Mississippi River, but once you see it, everything else is a trickle. You're like this beautiful, dangerous, mm -hmm. unpredictable body of water has shaped the, it's called a delta, it's really an alluvial plain, a floodplain, And that's because of the river when it overflows and then leaves all this rich sediment and it becomes cotton country mm -hmm. where enslaved people picked cotton, where sharecroppers picked cotton. Um, and so there's this exploitative relationship where our labor was exploited in service to wealthy people who owned the land, mm. right? Um, and at the same time, there's this deep connection. There's this really cool place in Helena. It's, it's a distillery, and uh, they make gin and bourbon and it's owned by a black family and what's unique about it is most of these kind of spirits alcoholic spirits are usually derived strictly from corn they use a combination of, of corn and sweet potatoes grown on their own farm which their black the, this black family has owned for generations um, and so it's a kind of a neat you know story yeah. of redemption in in that sense um, and I'm going back to uh, where I lived before. I live now in, in Louisville, Kentucky, but we had been living in the Delta for years and years. I'm going back for the first time in months. And the thing I'm most looking forward to is uh, walking this trail, this uh, nature trail that literally got me through the pandemic in terms mm. of like, so now I think a lot about land in terms of mental and spiritual health. Yeah. It's those walks yep. outside in nature, rain, snow, sun, cold, heat, whatever it is, but just being surrounded by sort of God's unadulterated creation, you know, hadn't been fiddled with too much by hum human hands has, has just been incredibly healing for me. Last year, we had a, a preacher here, Dr. Ellen Davis, who's a Hebrew scripture scholar, and um, she talked with us about um, how Hebrew people um, perceived the land as reflecting God's favor to them, like when the land is producing 
well, you know, God is pleased with us, and when it's not, we've got to repent. We're doing something wrong. Um, how could that sort of framework help us in our, as people of faith, again, in the climate crisis, as people, you know, who are looking at, you know, smaller and smaller spaces that are, quote unquote, unadulterated? Um, how could that, that mindset set us up? Or is that a helpful model? I mean, I have to think <laughs> a bit on that. I mean, the first thing I think about is, is what you mentioned, the relationship to the yeah. land. Um, just as we don't exist in isolation from other human beings, we don't exist in isolation from nature and our surroundings. And absolutely, uh, so uh, in Louisville, there's, there are these studies, uh, and this is in communities around the country, uh, that demonstrate lower income communities, which are disproportionately black and brown communities, experiencing massively higher levels of health issues because of pollution. Right. And they're zoned and they're sort of shuffled into these areas of the city that have all of this pollution uh, because they can't afford to live elsewhere. Um, and that just sort of demonstrates that, that relationship between the health of the land and our surroundings and our own health, even just right. physically, but then, as you're saying, this, these shrinking portions of unadulterated nature, those are not areas that have, like, huge parks <laughs> around, right? Like, so that our, our kids are growing up in just these, these concrete landscapes. Right. Um, and I really think we're, we're depriving our young people of something if they don't grow up with this. I mean, I remember as a kid... You know, we were in a kind of a suburb, but there were lots of woods. It wasn't all developed yet. And I remember finding owl pellets and sorting through and finding the little bones from mice. I remember finding snake skins and climbing trees and chasing butterflies and fireflies. And like, that is so good. It was, there's something so wholesome about that. You know? Totally. <laughs> and, and that just whole idea of paying attention, which is what so many societies did for so many generations is they were just paying attention. They were mm. noticing the land. They were in relationship, like you were saying. And I think um, in the capitalistic system that we live in, I, I have a few poems about this, and I write about how at some point as kids, like, you're sort of handed a checkbook, and it's like, it's time for you to be an adult now. It's time to learn how to write checks. It's time to talk about how you buy your first car. You know, you become... A little adult and and that also means it's time to give up those childish ways we don't look at owl pellets anymore we don't um, we don't have curiosity anymore you know we don't practice humility anymore we 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 need to you know buck up and become Americans and I think that that really can hurt and has hurt a lot of us you know we kind of trade our childlikeness for that and that doesn't happen to everyone I know a lot of people who are just as incredibly childlike and, and love nature than they always have. So it's not, but, but in our society that often happens. And when you pair that then with oppression that happens in different communities because they don't have access to nature, to these things, it, it just compounds it. And I yeah. think we need to keep paying attention. I think mm -hmm. we, in our communities, need to pay attention. We need to honor that relationship and notice how it has changed throughout the centuries. Beautiful. Well, I don't think I can get out of here without asking you about the word uh, resistance. <laughs> it's the title of Caitlin's most recent book. And today she talked a bit about, in her um, sermon at noon, resistance in some really surprising ways. You talked about intergenerational relationships as resistance. You talked about mindfulness as resistance. And that's not how I usually think of that word. So I'm wondering if we can kind of explore the importance of, and how do you conceive of resistance in this, this 2023 day and age we're in? I um I like to take terms that have become popular and 
ask what they actually mean. Like, what's the definition of that word? And then ask if, if the packaging we have for it makes sense or if we can stretch it a little. And so that's what I did in my new book is, of course, I looked up the, like, scientific definition of what resistance is and, um, and then decided that wasn't super helpful. And then, you know, and then, and then thought about what are we resisting? What do I want to resist in my daily life? And I realized that um, for future generations, for the future of Mother Earth, for the future of our lives that we are living right now, I think that we have to learn to resist the toxic status quo, whatever that is. We have status quos all around us, whether we realize it or not. Uh, we have status quos of ableism. We have a status quo of white supremacy, of racism, of hate, of colonization. We have all of these different aspects of what this is. And so we can look at the American context or the worldwide context, but resistance is how do we use our everyday life? How do we use whatever privilege we have? How do we use our own stories mm -hmm. to push against that status quo in solidarity with other people who are also doing it in their own beautiful way? And so I wanted it to be a book that honored resistance and care for ourselves. So there's the personal realm, like how do we do it in our own life through care and getting massages when you travel and taking care of yourself and doing the things you love and knowing your own story and telling the truth. How do we do it in communities? How do we practice solidarity and kinship? How do we do it in our relationship to the earth? Mm. How do we do it for our ancestors and for future generations? And so I wanted to frame this book and my work in a way that we stretch that idea of resistance, not just to mean like the raised fist of we're standing against something, but we're choosing something on the other side. And so what is this, what are we choosing? Like what world do we want to create? Mm. If we're pushing against some sort of toxic status quo, we have to be choosing something else as well. Mm. And that's up to us. That's up to us and, and how we create that world and the stories that we get to tell. And so does that make sense? Mm. I, I think it's um, it opens a door, yeah, yeah, um, because I don't know that there is one answer. Yeah, um, no, it is like you said. There are status quos all over the place, and and I guess questioning what do I just take for granted, mm -hmm. and and maybe what needs to change. What about you, Jamar? Heidi, you must be a reader. These questions are deep. <laughs> <laughs> I heard you were yeah. coming. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is good. Um, when I think of resistance, I think of, I think of the Lord's Prayer, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in, t in heaven. And it, and it feels to me like resistance is the conflict that occurs when we are trying to pray and live out God's kingdom mm -hmm. in a world that rejects it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so uh, it is this spiritual cosmic conflict until Jesus returns. Um, and, and the current book project I'm doing now is tentatively titled The Spirit of Justice, Stories of Race, Faith, and Resistance. Yeah. And really it's a book about what, how do we keep going when it feels like we're not winning? Mm -hmm. when that resistance to justice feels insurmountable. But one of the things I'm learning writing the book, which is a historical survey of, of how Christians understood their faith as resisting racism and white supremacy instead of being complicit with it, is there's all kinds of forms of resistance. Anything that sort of asserts your human dignity and your image of godness mm -hmm can be a form of resistance. So we're just writing about David Walker's appeal, which is probably the best known abolitionist pamphlet of, of the era written in 1829. And it's appeal to the colored citizens of the world. And it's a black man writing to other black people, reminding them of their dignity. Mm -hmm. And that's resistance. And also reading about um, on the slave ships, there were revolts to try to take over the slave ships, but there were also suicides. And it said, I'd rather die yeah. than be enslaved because I know my worth yeah. and I'm not going to be reduced, right? Um, and poetry's resistance and breaking a tool when you're supposed to be working for the plantation owner's resistance. Yeah. And 
what it does is create this sort of capacious idea that anything that we try to do that leads to flourishing mm -hmm. um, can be a form of resistance. Can singing be resistance? Yes. I think, and I'm not gonna ask you to sing, just, just. I was gonna say, does it, <laughs> no, does it no. have to be good singing? No, um, no, but no you, you just mentioned flourishing, and I think about, um, yeah, how music can, you know, get mm. people's heart rates going at the same, at the same tempo, and how, mm. um, or you hear an instrumentalist, and there's, there's just vibrations going through your body. Um, I mean, we think of the, the powwow, the drum beat, like at a powwow, the mm. beat of the drum is meant to remind us of our mother's heartbeat when we're in her womb. Mm. And so that's the beat of Mother Earth, you know, like, and so the, the beat of the drum is meant to pull us back to the earth. It's meant to pull us back home to our bodies, to mm. our ancestors. Like, it's so powerful, and it is resistance in every way. My last question for you all, I, I promised we were gonna turn toward the future for a little, just for the last question. Everybody on this panel is a parent with children still living at home. So how are you thinking about and working toward the spiritual formation of your children? You're giving me a lot of credit to say I'm thinking that much about it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I talked to your I wife, am. she told me. <laughs> um, I, mean, I mean, my son is 12, and a lot of what we're doing is trying to uh, really instill him with a positive self-image as a black boy who um, studies show that by the time um, black boys are around 12 years old, people view them as, on average, three years older. Mm. Which is how you get a Tamir Rice mm -hmm. being killed, right? Um, so knowing full well he's going to lose that, you know, kind of youthful cuteness, and then all of a sudden his embodied self becomes a threat to so many, right? So there's a spiritual dimension to understanding oneself through God's eyes first mm -hmm. and through the eyes of the people who love you first and not a world that has categorized and stereotyped and put you in a box. Um, so that's a big part of what we're doing. The, uh, the other part is, is just, you know, in terms of God as a parent, you know, understanding God as a parent, as a father, whatever, um, trying my best to show him what a loving parent does mm -hmm. while also holding the fact that I'm very imperfect uh, and not to blame that on God, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? So, I mean, we're doing that at the same time that we're trying to heal from our own church hurt, mm -hmm. you know? Like, it's not, we've been in communities that I've led my family into that haven't been safe. Yeah. Uh, so... It's a lot going on yeah. that reminds us that it's, it's going to be by the grace of God that we get through this thing. Yeah. Um, I have two kids, uh, two boys. They're 9 and 11. And so, um, again, like, similarly raising two Potawatomi kids and, you know, every year being ready to fight against what they're learning in school mm. about history, mm. about indigenous history, about so much of history, um, trying to instill in them who they are and also a love for all cultures, all faiths, all religions. Um, that's really important to us as a family. Um, when my kids were, were young, my husband sort of gave them like these little mottos that he had just gifted them. I don't know why, I don't know when it happened, but um, to one of them, it was find things that are wrong and make them right. Mm. And to the other, it was make the world more beautiful. And I will say that those are interchangeable between both of my kids, but it kind of speaks to like the fierceness of truth telling and also the gentle beauty of it mm. and how that all can be true in our lives for ourselves. Mm. And I think that we're trying to instill that in our, our kids every day. And again, trying to live it in a very imperfect way, but being honest about who we are as humans and parents is a huge part of that. We have just a couple of minutes here. If you listened to our conversation this evening and you have 
something that you would like to ask, um, a question for our panelists. We invite you to do that. Um, Um, Y'all mentioned uh, DEI and checking boxes. Do y'all have, I know in Jamar's book, The Color of Compromise in the back, there was a few activities, but can y'all list or say some specific things that individuals or churches or s groups within churches could do to do more than check the box? <laughs> so my second book, How to Fight Racism, is, is all about that, yeah. and it expands on the last chapter in The Color of Compromise. I, at, these days I'm thinking less in terms of isolated tasks and more in terms of the framework I lay out in the book, which is called The Arc of Racial Justice, and that's an acronym that stands for Awareness, Relationships, Commitment. And you can sort of do a self-audit, and awareness is, is all of the information, all the knowledge, all the data that we need to understand uh, in particular, racial dynamics. So that's reading the books, watching the documentaries, listening to a podcast, right? Did a lot of that in 2020 and not much else. Um, and then, but relationships is uh, how do we break out of our silos? Mm -hmm. um, that looks different for different people groups. For, for white folks, y'all have become experts on separating yourselves from anyone you didn't want to be around. And so you're going to have to exert extra effort to put yourself in the way of people who are different. For people of color, that means solidarity. Um, yeah. I was talking to Caitlin just before we press record, I'm like, this is it, right? We got indigenous, we got black up here, like they're gonna get real scared uh, real soon. Um, so, you know, it's coming together in, in ways that we can resist uh, more effectively. And then commitment isn't just staying the course, it means what, how do we commit to the actual systemic and policy changes that affect more than just individuals, but the way we sort of do life together as a whole. So, so that's lobbying and voting and, and things of that nature. So to me, um, it, the exact what to do is very contextual. Yeah. It's gonna be different in Memphis than it is in Louisville or Philadelphia or wherever. Um, and oftentimes, people have a sense of what to do. I, I find the real issue is not um, what to do, but are we willing to do it? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so to me, the real hurdle is actually exercising faith, <laughs> knowing that if we resist, the outcome is not guaranteed and our comfort is not guaranteed, um, but that is, the, the, the way of Jesus. Mm -hmm. That sounds a lot like faith. It sounds a lot like faith. Now, I do give practical suggestions in the book, which is right over there on the table. Yeah. <laughs> Available for purchase from our friends at Novel. We have time for another question, if there is one. Uh, this is not Dr. Tisby, I wish you would... I wish you would comment on being a young TFA student coming out of Chicago, moving into the metropolitan area of Helena, Arkansas, <laughs> and the uh, educational experience of uh, leading a classroom there. And I guess the last question would be, where is Helena, Arkansas, the Mississippi Delta, or the Arkansas Delta going to be in 10 years? Oh, my. So you got a connection to the, to the area. I didn't get this accent. <laughs> I got mine there. Um, wow, it was a culture shock. One of the layers of it is, um, from my perspective, my students didn't have a category for me as a young, black, educated, not from the Delta male in education. They didn't know whether to love me or hate me. or like They just didn't have a category for me. So for me, it took a long time just to be fully myself in that um, environment. Uh, it's absolutely heartbreaking in terms of poverty. So um, the poverty level in Arkansas is slightly higher than the national average. And the poverty level in my town was, was over twice that, 43% of people live at or below the poverty line. Um, and that affects our education, mm -hmm. for sure. So generation after generation, just underinvested, and, and to see these brilliant young minds 
deprived of resources. Um, and there's literal white flight school in the town. It was started in 1971 when the federal government starts to enforce desegregation and all of a sudden it's like, you know what? We need a new private school that the white community self-funded and all of those resources going into this private school instead of the public schools. Um, but at the same time, it really uh, transformed my concepts of wealth because there's a richness in the Delta mm -hmm. that can't be quantified, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the relationships. Mm -hmm. The way people love and care for one another, it, it's, it's hard to be isolated in such a small community, um, but with a, it, it, an understanding of we don't have much going for us materially, but we have each other was a lesson that I, I hope to carry with me and enact. And in 10 years, um, economically, it don't look good. It doesn't appear to be getting better. Uh, the, the, the county has been losing population since the 1970s. It continues that trend. Um, more stuff shutting down than opening up. And I think there will be a remnant of materially destitute people who we will generally overlook because not only are they poor, not only are they black, but they're rural. So it's not, in my view, a very bright picture. What's the high school population as far as when she construction? Yeah, yeah. So the college academies. That's right. In Mississippi, I think it was so hysterical. Even when they started up, and they liked it in the 70s, as a white flight, they all called it an academy. Right, yep. Yeah, it's called an academy in our town. Um, it, all the public schools are 98% black. Uh, to the extent there is diversity, it's the poor whites, you know, who, who can't go to the academy. And then the reverse for the academy, of course. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. They love to see us run, jump, kick. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. All right. Um, I want to give Caitlin just one. Uh, last question about, you used the word solidarity tonight, and I want you, uh, wonder if you would unpack that word, just, I know I took the, the microphone back for the last question, but um, what do you envision as a solidarity yeah. that, um, we're, that we're aiming toward? In the, again, I like definitions, so in the book I also play out the definition of solidarity, but basically, um, we need to be asking, solidarity is this idea of like the root, like what is the root cause? What is the root um, goal? What is the thing? You know, like in, in the church, is, it, is our solidarity in Jesus? You know, um, in, in our interfaith conversations, what's our solidarity rooted in? And so when we think of it that way, why are we fighting for the things we're fighting for? Um, why are we coming together? And it and I write about how solidarity, and you've already mentioned this, I mean, we've talked about this, that solidarity comes at a cost. It will cost something to stand with people that people don't want to stand with. It will cost something to think about indigenous communities and the land. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not meant to be uh, something that comes easy, and it doesn't. And also, um, I think it can, the, the allyship conversation of people who want to be in solidarity and do the work, but it it often can feel tokenizing, I think, to be the indigenous friend or, mm. um, and so I think there's a lot of work to be done in how we practice real solidarity and mm. that do we really want to be in this together? Like, do we really want to fight against these systems that have been in place for so, so, so long? Do we really want to understand what colonialism is and what white supremacy is and all of these again the the forms of status quo that we we have created that have been created that have held and still continue to be created and recreated all the time are we really willing to step into this together and I think that that's the question that we all have to ask individually I mean it has to be a really deep question and a question that may not have a totally solid answer and a question mm. that will take our whole lives mm. to answer. Yes, because sir. that's the other problem is we want to we want quick fixes. Yeah. That's the American way. And it's not good when we do that. It doesn't it just leads to burnout and pain for a lot of people that are trying to 
change things. And so we have to remember that solidarity is a lifelong movement and embodiment. I think that's a beautiful place to stop. Stepping into a vision that is not quite settled, but together. Um, thank you so much, Jamar Tisby and Caitlin Curtis for being with us tonight. You can catch Jamar here at noon tomorrow and check out the recording of Caitlin's sermon at calvarymemphis.org. And as you're on your way out, do check out the book table from our friends at Novel. Buy everything that they have. This is their last night, and they don't want to pack any of it up. So buy it all. You can have Caitlin and Jamar sign it. And thank you. Good night. Thank you all. Dialogue is a podcast of Calvary's Lenten preaching series, a 100-year-old tradition that invites wise and inspiring speakers into our pulpit during the season of Lent. Dialogue is produced by Noah Glenn of Perpetual Motion. Our theme music was composed by Spence Bailey. Special thanks to Robin Banks, Director of Communications at Calvary, and Heidi Rupke, Lenten preaching series coordinator. And thanks to you for listening. If you're curious about the home of dialogue in the Lenten preaching series, Calvary Episcopal Church is an eclectic bunch of Christian people. We don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into a beloved community marked by unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to Dialogue at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.